at Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. I want you to uh, picture that little one. It's bedtime, right? Can you picture it? It's getting on like 8, 8.30, but let's say it's tonight and you've had friends over and you're having a good time. Of course, they've got their boots on because of church, you know, today and everything. So they got their boots on, maybe a little hat, you know, and they're going about their business. About 8 o'clock, you know what's going to happen. They're going to start to do the yawn. They're going to start to rub the eyes and you're going to ask the question, aren't you? Hey, are you getting sleepy? And what are they going to say? No, I'm not sleepy. I'm not. Why would they say that when clearly there's... Because FOMO. They have this fear of missing out. They don't want to miss out on anything. And so they're going to tell you, no, I'm not sleeping. You know within five minutes they're going to be passed out sleeping, right? You know what's going to happen. And we do that sometimes too, don't we? We're afraid of missing out. We're afraid someone's going to have some fun and we're not going to be part of it. Someone's going to experience something that we don't experience. We end up looking a lot like this dog. Look at this dog. Watch this dog. Yeah, so we do that. We do that. We look so ridiculous sometimes, but we do. We end up trying to chase anything that we think would help us to experience the pleasure that someone else is experiencing. Let's take our Bibles and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to talk about hedonism today. Hedonism is this whole thought that whatever I think will make me happy, wherever I think would have some fun, whatever would give me some kind of pleasure in life, that's what I'm going to chase. It's all me focused. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 today. Now, most theologians agree that Ecclesiastes is written by uh, King Solomon. King Solomon is this guy who he literally could chase whatever it is in the world that he wanted, and he did. He literally chased it all. And at the end of that chasing, everything that the world had to offer, he said it was all meaningless, right? We will get there. But what we want to do today is we want to read through the full text, verses 1 through 11, then we'll spend some time examining it together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Solomon writes this. He says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, also, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great. And surpass all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, 
whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This passage is such an impressive resume when it comes to the pursuit of productivity. All right, but it leaves us with this huge question. This question is, why is pleasure so short-lived? Why is pleasure so short-lived? Look back at verse 11. He says, Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is just going for it. He puts full effort into his pleasure. And here's what it reminds me. It reminds me a little bit of, like, I like Zillow. You guys know that. Like, I love to look at houses. I like that HomeSnap app. I like the Realtor.com app. I like, I think it's the Detroit News that has, like, this special weekend edition. And the special weekend edition, it's got these houses that are over the top. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, it's got, like, here's the house with a 30-car garage. Like, most of us would never, ever even get to tour that house except through the paper, right? But he, there's real people who own houses like that. Like, here's my 30-car garage, and here's my indoor basketball court with the little viewing room so people can watch. And the architecture that just blows you away in the garden area that's out there, and this swimming pool that's inside with the cave built in so you can swim inside because Michigan, right? And so we look at the, that's what Solomon's doing. Solomon basically says in verses 1 through 11, hey, everybody, come on. I'm going to take you on a tour. And look what he does. The first thing he says is, check out my private pub. He said, I sought to cheer myself with wine. That's what, okay, this, this is the wealthiest man on the planet. He is buying the very, very best wine on the entire earth at this point and stocking his sellers with it, right? Come check out my private pub. Now we know from Proverbs 31, Solomon is this person who doesn't buy into this drink to drunkenness mindset. And yet he says that there's pleasure to be found in wine though, I want to experience it. So he just dives in and he says, I'm gonna buy the best wine that money can buy. He doesn't stop there. He says, I'm gonna have these gardens. So as he's taking us on the tour, he says, look at my gardens. He says, I built great works. Now in the ancient world, if you wanted to know what a king would value, a king would value their gardens, like the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world, right? But it's not just the ancient world, is it? Even like when we lived in Portugal, the kings of Portugal, this is the 1600s, the 1700s, they would send their explorers all around the world and they would come back with these trees and these ferns and these shrubs and sometimes in different places of the world, disease would break out, fires would break out, war would break out. And some of these trees, some of these shrubs, some of these ferns, they're extinct now in other parts of the world. And the gardens there around the Lisbon area, this is the only place in the entire world that you can, they take so much pride still today in those gardens. And Solomon's going, yeah, it took a bit of, took a bit of work, but we had to figure out how to get the water from there to there to water these trees. But we've done it. We have spared no cost in these gardens. He keeps going. He says, I've gathered for myself silver and gold. Check out my treasury, right? Silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Can I just tell you that is so understated? And if you're new to the Bible and you don't know King Solomon's story, 
then you wouldn't understand how understated that is. So let me just read to you 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 19, because I want you to understand the opulence that he's talking about. He says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants, from all the kings from the west, from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests with two lions standing beside the armrest. While 12 lions stood there, one on each of the six steps. The like of which was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the vessels. The house of the force of Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Okay, now what I just read, I was actually going to be real nerdy for you. And I was going to like, how much value would that be in today's money? I gave up within the first two lines, and let me tell you why. One talent of gold is roughly one and a half million dollars today. He got 666 talents per year. Just start there with the math. And that says that's not even including the money that came from explorers, from businesses and merchants and kings of the West and governors. It doesn't even include any of that. Right? And so we see this king with so much wealth. And so he kind of grins. Can you see him grinning? As he's like, check out my treasury. It's pretty good, right? And he's like, but I'm not finished. Come on. And he keeps us on this tour. And he says, let's go to the music room. I've got singers, both men and women. Just think about New Year's Eve. We'll turn on that TV and we'll watch the, the people that are performing in New York City and the people performing in, in L.A. and the people performing in Big. Okay, here's, here's what Solomon did. He said, oh, that, that's really cute. That's really nice. But I'm going to get them all in one place under my roof, men and women, the best in the world, the best performers right here so I can take pleasure and enjoy this music right here one roof. I don't need to turn on the TV. They're all right here. And he says, but all that, all that's like smoke and mirrors. It's all meaningless. These gardens, this, this wine, this money, the concubines, like all of it, it just is so meaningless at the end. Listen to this pile of words he uses. He uses words like toil and vanity and striving after wind, no profit under the sun. And the thing is, I think we all know where he's coming from. I mean, we don't, we don't know because we have like 200 shields with beaten gold. We don't know like that. But I think we all have things we chase after in life, don't we? We have things that we think, we, we think are fun. Like some of you this summer, you've been on vacation and you've been to that tropical paradise, the cool winds in your face, and the air smells like coconut. It's fantastic, right? And you stand on the beach, and the water's laughing at your feet. Or you stood at the mountains, and you looked up, and you're like, oh, this is just awesome. All right? And some of you are like, I'm not the traveling type, but you finished that house project, didn't you? 
You step back and you look at it and you're like, this is so good. Or you moved houses or you bought the car or you did that thing. Or, or maybe for you, it's not about stuff at all. You're like, there's nothing better than sitting there with the fishing pole in the water. That line is just there. It's getting wet. Not a lot going on. Got my hat so I don't sunburn my head, you know, and I'm just, just enjoying life. Got my shirt with the little flap thing on the back so my back can breathe, you know. Life is good. You're just fishing. And then all of a sudden, that line has a little tug on it. You're like, ah, oh, so good, right? You're just enjoying it. But isn't it true? In all those things, there's still a nagging for more. Maybe for you, it's hobby. I've got a hobby. You guys know I have a hobby. I've got my fish tank in my office. I love my saltwater fish tank. It takes, you know, 10 minutes a day. I just kind of piddle with it. But there's nothing better for me than I walk in and I look and my corals are just doing this and Nemo's swimming around. He's happy as can be. Like, I, I, I love it, right? But I think every single one of us would end where Solomon ends, where we would say the things of the world never fully satisfy. There's always going to be this longing for more because we know the reality. And the reality is that vacation comes to an end, doesn't it? That house project, well, something's still going to break. That car, there's going to be a new model. My fish tank, I will walk in one day. It has happened enough times that I know I'm going to walk in one day and all my coral will be dead. For no reason, I didn't do anything to it. It just decided I'm dead now. I'm not going to live anymore. Start over, right? It's the most frustrating thing in the world. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, he who loves money or even the pleasure it promises will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. I, I don't know who said this quote, but I think the quote is phenomenal. It says, when it comes to pleasure, the advertising agency is better than the manufacturing department. Amen. It's pretty good, isn't it? But, but that's how we do. We think if I just get that job, if I, if I just get that raise, if I just get that position, if I just have this, this child, if I just get married to that person, if I, just do, if I just do this, then I'll really be happy in life. And it never works like that. So last month was Amy's birthday, and for Amy's birthday, we went to Detroit to the Van Gogh exhibit. Has anyone been down there, seen it, raise a hands? Two. That's it was great, wasn't it? Like, it was wonderful. And so let me tell you about it then. Uh, Van Gogh was an artist, y'all. He was a very famous artist. <laughs> and um, here's the thing, though. He tried everything in life to try to be happy, including ministry, like, which is funny to me. But anyway, he's like, I'm going to try ministry. Maybe that'll make... Nope, that didn't work. Like, that didn't... Build. So he kept trying all these different things. Finally, at the age of 27, he started to paint. And he was just alive for 10 more years before he took his own life. He painted 900 paintings in just 10 years. Not including his sketches, not including his drawings, not including all his journal entries. That's his paintings. That means one roughly every 36 hours he finished a painting. Those of you who are artists, can you imagine that kind of production? Just searching. There's got to be something else. I got to be able to became one of the world's greatest painters who's ever, ever lived. And this exhibit was so cool because you walk in and you have, they combine his paintings with today's technology. And so you have projected versions of his paintings up with floating frames around and different quotes from his. But the highlight was this big room. You walk into this big room, it's 
probably similar in size to this room, and you walk, it may be even bigger than this room, you walk into this room and they have projected a painting. So it's almost like you're in the middle of the painting and it's, it's the floor is his painting and the walls are his painting all the way around you. The pillars are his painting. And the thing is, is the painting keeps changing. It's swirling and it's moving almost like the hand of Van Gogh is painting this thing right as you're there and different quotes will pop. It's so cool. 10 years later though, Van Gogh would say it was all meaningless the very, very, very best that he could possibly produce still was not enough. It's not just artists, is it? It happens in sports. So I grew up in Oklahoma. And growing up in Oklahoma, that meant you're a Dallas Cowboy fan. You don't have your own football team, so you borrow the closest one to you, which was the Cowboys. And being a Cowboy fan, there was one particular player that I disliked with everything in me, Lawrence Taylor, LT. Man, the guy was a monster on the football field. He played for the Giants, so twice a year, every year, the Cowboys had to play LT, and he was just vicious. Well, he wrote this book, and in the book called LT Over the Edge, he describes his football experience this way. He said, when I was on the field, I was Superman. It was like I operated on a higher plane. But when I came off the field, something happened. LT became Lawrence, and Lawrence was completely clueless and empty. It's not just famous people, is it? You see, doing what I do, I walk with a lot of people as they go through transitions in life. And I see people who used to be soldiers, and then they retire. They used to be teachers, and then they retire. These couples that had children in the home and the children grow up and they leave you. They're going to leave you, right? In one week, they're going to leave me. And um, I'm not bitter about it. (laughs) And what happens with so many is they really struggle in those moments. Because all of a sudden someone wakes up at 5 a.m. and they say, I don't know how to not soldier anymore. I don't know what that means. I don't know who I am. I don't know how to go through life. We'll come August not returning to the classroom. I I don't know how to do that. Husbands and wives saying, we don't know who we are anymore because we don't have children that we're supposed to raise. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. People who spent their whole lives making cars and all of a sudden they're going, I I have a Monday and it just is like any other day and I literally don't know what to do in my own skin. I don't know who I am because you spent your whole life chasing productivity, chasing after that next thing that's going to make me feel good, that next thing that's going to make me feel successful. Look what, what Solomon said. The whole time he's chasing after pleasure, it was never about others, was it? Do you see what he said over and over and over? He said, for myself. For myself, he made vineyard for for myself. He brought in these musicians. Who are the musicians for? For myself. I have these beautiful gardens. I have these forests. Is that for the people of Jerusalem? No, for myself. It's all self-focus. And Jesus taught straight against that. In Matthew 6, he says to them, take care. And Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He tells us not to chase after the treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You see, I think so oftentimes, even for the Christian, we lose sight of it sometimes, don't we? 
we lose sight that our whole lives are supposed to be about knowing him and making him known. And we start to think that our lives are about that thing of moving up that ladder, of chasing that hobby, chasing the possessions, that hedonism, right? We start to think that, that we're going to get the thirst of life quenched from somewhere else. And that brings us to our last point today, that God is a well that never runs dry. God is a well that never runs dry. Eventually, this is where this series is going to go. Eventually, Solomon gets it. He gets that he's not supposed to chase after the creation. He's supposed to chase after the creator. That's what he gets. Because God is a God who wants us to have pleasure in life. Genesis 2 says, Genesis 2, 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You see, God created pleasure. The problem is, is we always want to go outside the bounds that God has set up. We see Paul talk about that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, all things are lawful for me. Did you hear that? All things, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. There's a right way and a wrong way. God has designed us to find our greatest pleasure in him. It's what we read in the Psalms. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 107, for he satisfies the longing of my soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Think about the experience in the garden. God created everything, the heavens and the earth. He creates all the animals. He creates the vegetation. And finally, at the very end, he creates mankind. And there we have Adam and Eve in the garden looking around, seeing all of these trees, all this vegetation, knowing that I can eat. Whatever I eat is going to be good. It's going to make my body feel good. No sickness, no disease. They're in the cool of the day. Absolute perfection as far as the climate and temperature is concerned. They're walking with God in the garden. There is pleasure in that moment. The heartbreaking story of Scripture, though, is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. And what that means is we try to find our joy, we try to find our satisfaction in life outside of God. To enjoy creation is fine, but it's when we're chasing after the satisfaction of life through the creation. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And verse 24, therefore God gave them up in their lust, and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. That's what we do we end up trying to chase the pursuit of our life, the mission of our life, chasing that next thing, whatever that next thing is for you. See, some of you, you don't even care about the new car. Some of you, that's all you care about. Some of you don't care about the new house. For some of you, that's what drives you. 
For some of you, you don't really care about the position in the workplace, like where you are in the org chart. For others, that's all that consumes you. But you all have the thing. We all have the thing, don't we? That we try to struggle against, that we, that we fight against. This is the incredible story of the gospel, that it's in that place that God sent Jesus. Because God saw that we were trying to quench our thirst from all these places of the world. Jesus came and he said this in John 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when I was, um, I was a kid, I mentioned I grew up in Oklahoma. Before that, I'd really lived all over the place. Dad was in the military, so uh, we lived a lot of places. But then elementary, late elementary school and then on up, we, we stayed in Oklahoma. So in middle school, Dad said, I, I want to show you where I grew up. So we loaded up in the car and we drove to eastern Kentucky to a place called Sand Gap. Y'all don't know where Sand Gap is, probably. But if you're familiar with, with Kentucky, it's near McKee. McKee is like the closest real place to Sand Gap because we're talking up in the hills, up where the hillbillies are. Like, I'm not playing around. Like, that's where my dad was from. In fact, he pulled up in front of the house where he grew up. And I kind of looked like, where's the rest of it? And he's like, no, this is it. And so we got out of the car and we went up to this cabin and we opened the door because there was no one living in it. And, and this house literally had a dirt floor. That's where my dad grew up literally a dirt floor. There's no electric switch. There's no electric in the house. There's no running water. And so I'm looking around. Of course, my mouth is hitting the floor. And uh, my dad's explaining, now, son, we weren't dirty. Mom would, she would sprinkle water around on the floor to keep the dust from going crazy and everything. But this is how we live. It's how people in the hills live. It's just what we had. And everybody was like this. So we didn't really think of ourselves as ports, just the way people lived. And we walked out back, and he kind of scratched his head. He said, well, right there is where the outhouse was. It's not there anymore. But he said, that's, you know, where you go do your business was the outhouse. And he looked, and he said, down there. So when he was in Kentucky, his accent got real thick. Like, it's like when I go to Oklahoma, my accent, you think I got an accent? Wait till I go see mama. You know, then the accent really, really gets thick. And so he goes, down there in the holler. And I'm like, oh, wait, Dad, what's a holler? And he goes, down yonder, you know. Down yonder in the holler, that's where the creek would go through. He was saying the creek. That's what he was saying. The, the creek would go right down there through the holler, and he goes, that's where we go get our water. He goes, but that water was the water that we would use for the garden or for the animals or, or things like that, you know, just like that kind of water. He goes, for drinking every day. He says, since I was the youngest, it was my job. I had to take two, two buckets of water. I had to walk down to where the well is, down at the end of the road there. I'd have to fill up my buckets every day and carry them back to that. That was our drinking water. And I thought, well, that's a lot more work because the, the creek was, or the creek was, was right there. You know, that's a lot closer just to walk there. And he looked at me and shook his head. He goes, son, you, know, you, you drink that water. It's going to make you sick. You know, you, your stomach, because you think it's going, it's going to taste good going down because it's nice and cold. But that water, he goes, I promise you, you'll spend a lot of time in that outhouse if you drink that water. <laughs> Not what we do, though. We go through life and we know that chasing that next thing that we're going to take on our house tour, that we're going to show someone, we know in the end it never satisfies. And if that's what you're chasing for the Sabbath, yeah, go on vacation. Enjoy your vacation. I want to celebrate with you. Like, I think it's fantastic when you go on vacation and it refreshes and recharges you. 
If your car needs update, update your car. But don't let those things be your identity. Have fun with the kid. Don't let that be your identity. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. That's where your identity is supposed to rest. And there's some of you in this room right now that you have spent your whole life trying to quench your thirst from the ways of the world. And you would give a testimony way stronger than I could through my stories this morning that that place right now in your life has not brought satisfaction. In fact, right now you would say in your life it's brought nothing but this place where you're saying, I know it's not enough, but I don't know how to quench that thirst. But right now life seems so, so meaningless. Because you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And some of you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have surrendered your life to Jesus, and yet you've started to drift, haven't you? You've started to get away from the calling that he's put in our lives to go and to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize and teach people to obey what Jesus has commanded. You're teaching great business principles. You're teaching great morals and values, but, but you're kind of avoiding this is what Jesus taught. Today is a great day to bring realignment with your life to his. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the high calling that you placed on our lives. Lord, I want to start by praying for my brothers and sisters in the room that maybe there has been drift. And it's so easy for it to happen, to think that life is about the, the next taste of wine or the dinner that we haven't had or the trip that we haven't been on or the fishing trip or the hunting trip or the, the thing for the kids. or the, Lord, we just consume ourselves with everything around us. And unfortunately, that means sometimes we're not consumed with you. Lord, will you forgive us for those times? We want to surrender daily to you. Pick up our cross and follow you daily. Lord, I want to pray for those who maybe they've never surrendered to you as Lord and Savior. They've been going through life trying to figure out that next thing that will satisfy and the whole time it's never, ever enough. They keep reaching out and trying to cling on to whatever they can gain. If Solomon in all of his riches and all of his power at the end of the day would say those things are meaningless. Lord, I know that every single one of us at the end of the day will come to the same conclusion. That life has to be about you and your glory. So Lord, for that individual, I pray for them to have the boldness right now just to say, God, I believe. I believe that you love me. And I know that I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. It's not that I've tried to sin. I, I've tried to do good. I've tried to be good. I, I just, I'm not perfect. God, I know the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from you. And I believe that that's why you sent Jesus who lived and died and who lived again. And I'm placing my faith and my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. Lord, I pray for those individuals to have the courage not only to surrender to you, but to tell someone, the person who invited them, someone at the Connect desk to find me. Lord, give them the boldness to say, I've got this new life in Christ, but I don't know what it means. Will you walk with me and show me what it means to follow Jesus? Lord, we want to continue to be a church who brings you honor 
It brings you glory with everything that we do. Continue to sharpen us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us stand as we close our morning singing about that living water. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today. 